Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. On each show, I interview a fascinating person behind the scenes in the food industry, and they share stories of their personal and professional successes and challenges. Today, I am thrilled to have as my guest a woman who has produced pretty much all of my favorite food TV, from Parts Unknown and No Reservations with Anthony Bourdain to Mind of a Chef uh, to Jeremiah Tower, The Last Magnificent. Here with me is Lydia Tenalia. Welcome, Lydia. Thank you so much. So happy to have you. I have been, indeed, a super fan since 2002 with A Cook's Tour. And um, I have to tell you that when I first read Tony Bourdain's book, um, I thought he was a jerk. You know, I, I had an almost allergic reaction to Kitchen Confidential. I put it down, and you know, people at Food and Wine would say, "Hey, there's this book, this guy," and I'm like, mm, "I don't think I don't think so." <laughs> I was obviously so wrong. And then later, I met Tony, and I was like, "Oh my God, you're amazing! Yeah, you obviously had the exact opposite reaction that I did. You read Kitchen Confidential, and you heard that he was going yeah. on, a, you know, a, a tour for potentially his next book. You're like, this guy's interesting. What about him and that book made you sort of think, you know, what uh, this this could be great? Yeah, that's a very great question, and I think I had probably a similar reaction when I read the book. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, in that reaction too, I think there was um, a lot of laughter. I, I laughed at the sarcasm and the you know sardonic wit, and there was clearly for me an intelligence behind the words. Um, and just you know, at that point in my particular career, when I started out as an editor, and at a working for other companies and then I became a producer for that company and I had been doing a lot of medical shows so it was a lot of blood and guts type of series and I really wanted to you know a change of genre (laughs) so I read Kitchen Confidential and I thought and I read Tony wanted to do a follow-up book called The Cook's Tour where he was going to travel around the world and see how you know the rest of the world ate and I thought oh that might make an interesting idea and I cold called him and you cold called him? I did. He was still working at a restaurant. <laughs> That's so incredible. Yeah. And he, you know, he clearly had been getting lots of calls from media and had done interviews because Kitchen Confidential made such a splash. Right. So, you know, he took my call and I said, would you ever, can I come meet with you? And I went to the restaurant. He was in his chef whites and, you know, he was full on working as the executive chef at Leal. And we sat at the bar. I remember he stood up and I immediately thought, you know, this guy's effing tall <laughs> and how are we going to shoot him yeah. this is all the how do you get him in the frame right how are we going to get him in the frame 
And um, we just had like a, a very brief conversation where I introduced myself and I said, you know, would you ever want to try to pitch the idea of a cook's tour, the television series? And I think in the back of his mind, he was like, you know, whatever. You right. know, they, those weren't really, he didn't have those aspirations at the time. I think he was just thinking, what's my next follow-up book? Right. And my husband, Chris Collins, and I went to uh, lay all a week later. We had small cameras. We shot a demo of Tony in the kitchen. And that was really the start of our relationship. And, you know, it wasn't a demo about him. It was, it was really um, his imaginings, his sort of romantic notions about what traveling the world would be for That's him. so interesting. And why is that what you pulled out of him? Because that dreaminess is not necessarily, uh, it, it is the foundation of what was to come, but it wasn't his past. It wasn't his past. He had not traveled at all. He had traveled briefly as a child to France, and then he had gone to, I think, Japan once. But in the kitchen, when we had a moment with him to sit down and actually do this interview, what I think Chris and I both realized very quickly is that Tony had an encyclopedic knowledge uh-huh. of films, of books. Right. And the, the, there were references that he was pulling out, and it was clearly like, this guy is very well read. He has, he has an he arsenal. He's from Westchester, right? He's, I mean, yeah. he's, so for as crazy as um, part of his life has been, the drugs, the alcohol, the insanity, um, he, you know, he has sort of these ordinary roots and what a crazy smart mind. Yeah. 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 And it was clear that, you know, he was pulling from like his references were very literary and they were very filmic and he knew how to turn a phrase clearly as evidence in, you know, kitchen confidential. And it's, it's, it was really that, that's what I think attracted me, attracted Chris to working with Tony. And we thought, you know, I don't think we all said, went out the door with the idea that we were going to do some genre-breaking, yeah. genre-defining travel show. You know, we just sort of followed our own, all three of us, and the crew was just the three of us. Okay, that's amazing. <laughs> that first, the first trip when you did Japan and Vietnam, it was actually just the three of us and a small camera. It was just the three of us, and we were figuring it out as we went along, and I think all three of us just followed you know, organically what we were passionate about and what excited us. And so we we didn't go into it with the intent of making like, you know, a travel show <laughs> or I let's am- make a format, you know, where you do this and then this and then this. It was really like, let's just follow our passion and follow our our own kind of um, romantic notions here. I think all was three that, of us had that. Was that nerve-wracking in a way? Because w- the result of following your passions was creating groundbreaking programming. Yeah. Period. As you were doing that, did you have this sense, this is going to change things? Or did you not really know when you were inside of it how different it would turn out to be? No, I think it was... It, it was really, it, 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 it's, it really started to all kind of click when we were, the three of us were sitting around and we were laughing and we were all sort of immediately understanding, like, we're all referencing the same things here. And so how do we bring those to life visually? And so in all honesty, we went a little rogue. <laughs> I mean, we did. I, yeah. I think, you know, the network 
we weren't really answering to the network. We weren't really answering to, you know, anyone. We were sort of answering to ourselves and what we were, what we were enjoying, what we felt passionate about. And I, I can honestly say that that has become a, a kind of defining ethos and philosophy of 0.0, which is the, the production, production company, company that we have. You know, is we really, maybe much to the dismay of, you know, our agents and what have you, we don't often follow the mandate, you know, of, of what a, a, a network may be looking for. It's, it's really uh, following our passion of, like, what is exciting us about this person, this story, this idea, and how so, can we kind of turn it into, you know, something that we feel is challenging to us. You were talking right. earlier about the magazine and feeling challenged, you know. Right. Um, it's interesting because I think you've earned that. You've earned the right to go. You went rogue at the beginning just because. And now you've earned the right to go rogue because when you do, great things happen. But do you think that people who are starting out now, like if you were a new and young production company, you would be given that amount of rope, not you, but somebody else. Do you think that that's how creativity still happens? I think you have to be extremely courageous <laughs> to, and very brave to be, to, to follow your own instincts. It's, it, you know, I, it's funny because I, ha it, I was working at this um, production office for several years, um, and it was a good job, and I was meeting cool people. Um, and, but at one point, I felt like I've got to push myself forward. And I remember someone um, gave me this advice and said, just stay where you are. You know, stay, stay where you are. You, you're meeting good people. You've got a steady income, you know, and... That I guess this churn in me has always been there of like, no, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna. I don't care if I fling myself off of a cliff. I don't yeah. care if I fling myself into like the chasm of the unknown. Yeah, it's extremely frightening, but you have got to have faith and you have got to have courage that if you really want to, you know, push forward, you've got to follow that strong instinct and and and, you know. The, the, the universe will push you where you need to go. And I've always sort of followed that. Do you feel that the fact that there were three of you, extraordinary, three people holding hands, jumping into the void together at the same velocity? Yeah. I find that extraordinary. Um, I don't know any other example of that. Has there been just, is that a, a peaceful ride into the, <laughs> into the chasm? Or is there a creative tension between the three of you? You're married to one of the three. Um, and then, you know, Tony, who over time has become a larger and larger presence and celebrity, um, well-deserved. What type of creative tension is there, or how does that work? I, I mean, the, the creative tension, I think, is always there and it's always very healthy between the three of us. I think Tony also by nature is extremely rogue. I think his, you know, his, his inimitable style, writing style, you know, his, you know, delivery live in, you know, he's, he's, um, he's a restless creative mind. And so it's constantly moving and constantly churning. And so there is, um, there is a rogue element to him. Um, and I think Chris and I were very, at the time, and still very um, 
kind of fired up by that because, you know, we had just sort of come from jobs where it's like, just do this, execute it this way, get it done. And so we did all kind of hold hands, the three of us, and we jumped off of a cliff together. And we've been together, you know, 17 years working on various projects. You know, certainly uh, Tony's series has iterated over the last 17 years and evolved and become really interesting. I'd love to know about that, that evolution. How do you know when it's time to pick up a different concept, right? Because you have done many things with Tony. The, there's a Cook's Tour, Parts Unknown. I mean, you can list them far, but the layover, um, you can list them more easily than I. But is it that you, the three of you sort of said, oh, you know, time to move on? Like, did the universe tell you? Like, how is it that you moved through these iterations to keep moving forward? Because I, I do think that's the most fun thing, but you, how did you know? Well, typically the network is ready to kick you out. (laughs) (laughs) That's easy. No, but all joking aside, we did do two years of Cook's tour. And then, you know, Food Food Network, um, you know, very successfully pivoted their brand in a very particular direction. And they, I think, wanted certain things out of the series. They wanted to be more domestic and more relatable topics. And, you know, having done two years of international travel and sort of got our, we really were starting to get our rhythm of, oh, we understand what this show is. Mm-hmm. You know, food, the table is just, it's just your entry point, mm-hmm. but it really is about a different story. It's about people, humanity, connecting everybody. Fundamentally, we're kind of all the same. You know, they had, there were so many other cultural t- touch points. And after two years, I think they were ready to, you know, pivot. And I think they wanted Tony to pivot with them. And Tony said, listen, I'm enjoying what I'm doing, and I sort of respectfully back away from the table. And we moved on. And, you know, we met some really fantastic people at Travel Channel at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, It was headed by uh, a guy who currently is uh, back in the UK, British guy, who really sort of got the sensibility of the Hmm. show. And we did, you know, eight successful years on Travel Channel. Midway through that process, that wonderfully smart, intelligent guy went back to the UK and we moved, you know, we tried to move forward. And again, I think we just kind of hit the same wall. The mm-hmm. show wanted to iterate. It wanted to evolve. Mm-hmm. It wanted to become something more. Mm-hmm. And we hit a ceiling mm-hmm. there. And at that moment, interestingly enough, CNN was opening their doors to original series and they pursued us. And it was a unbelievably serendipitous. You know, you can call it serendipity. I'm a big believer in, you know, being very connected to the universe. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what happened. The show pivoted again at that point. And then it really, once we hit CNN, I think we just exploded into the direction the show wanted to go, was pushing to go. Um, I think it, it, of course, in its iterations, had a voice, but... It feels, as an, as a viewer, that the three of you truly came into your own at CNN because the the mission of the work became so much greater and more exposed, and the timing for that was so perfect. Had you had that same mission eight years earlier, perhaps you would you wouldn't have had that show nor that success. Can you talk a little bit, a bit about what you see as the mission of, of that, uh, the latest iteration at CNN? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could say that 
the idea of mission has been very much at the center of my particular journey in this business. When I was working in that same uh, small production office I referenced earlier, I had, and it was in 1989, I had, you know, written a post uh, index card for myself that said, you know, one day I'm going to have a film and television production company I that creates that. global content. I have this card. I still have oh my it. Gosh, you know, this is 1989, uh. where we're creating uh, projects that um, connect humanity. And I hadn't met my husband at the time. I sort of have a similar card about him. Oh, <laughs> and my he kind goodness. of like, and he came into my life. And so th- it was a sort of driving mission statement that I had that if I'm going to work in this industry, the content that I'm involved in and that I create has to have a, um, it has to have a, a mission at the center of it, and it needs to create value. It's very important. I think we have a responsibility as content creators to create projects that that pull you pull people together, not divide them. So and that's very, very, very important to me. So I I watch the evolution of Bourdain's series and it maybe it was a mission statement that took really seventeen years to manifest, mm-hmm. but it did. It manifested, and I, I can honestly say that all the work we're creating at 0.0 now, I feel very proud, is in in some way, shape, or form, you know, centrally attached to that anchor mission statement. So let's talk about some of the other amazing shows, because though Tony is an, an anchor in some way and a partner in so many of the other things that you're doing, so it's not like these are without Tony, but um, Mind of a Chef, which is another series that I love. I love the, uh, I love the way that you've managed to capture the stories. Some people are naturally articulate, like Gabrielle Hamilton. I could listen to her forever. Just listening to her talk about the blistering of an eggplant just makes me weepy. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's amazing, but the, the visual style of that show is so great. And the, um, the illustrations that are a a piece of it. So I'm curious how Mind of a Chef um, fits in the sort of the narrative of your work and, and how you broke um, broke out with a, a different visual identity. Yeah, I think, again, it all stemmed from um, how can we take this subject matter, which, you know, other networks, you know, are dealing with, which is chefs, cooking, food, um, and approach it in the 0.0 style. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of our, you know, driving start. That's where we're starting from. Like, okay, th- we there's lots of shows on TV where we see stand and stirs and chefs cooking and all that. So what is our take on this? What, what is, what is, what is our kind of chef show look like? And I remember the conversations started very early on where we were toying with like anatomy of a meal or and it always connected to, like I said with Bourdain, the table is just the entry point. Right. Food is an entry point. There are people yeah. beyond and behind what you're seeing on the table. You know, who are those people? What are their inspirations? What are their sense memories? Mm-hmm. What were their formative years? Mm-hmm. What, what was everything, you know, that they brought literally and figuratively to, to the, the table? table. And I think that's the purpose of that show is, 
is to, you know, chefs and people in, 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 in the restaurant world in many sense are, they're artists. And like all great artists, there is an entire kind of world of memory behind, you know, who they became and, and what they're able to, to you, know, you know, bring to the world. And I think that's the purpose of that show. Again, just to go deeper into that exploration. I think that it makes such perfect sense why you chose Jeremiah Tower. I just want to talk about Jeremiah a little bit because um, the documentary is so entertaining and engaging and beautiful. Uh, Jeremiah's memories of his youth are so strong as a, a, a privileged uh, but lonely and sad child um, to creating Chez Panisse with Alice Waters, depending on who's telling the story, and um, and then stars, and then sort of his uh, absenting himself to Mexico and a brief return. And I think that um, Tony's the one who had brought him to your attention. Was it because of this, those memories? I mean, did you see within him just this... Um, this world of possibility? Absolutely. Uh, you know, what was interesting was um, Bo- Tony had read uh, Jeremiah's memoir. It's called California Dish. It's actually been republished now. It's called Start the Fire. Oh, um, that's so interesting. I, I, I and there's, this n- there's new material in it. So oh, that's so interesting. Good to know. It's worth, it's worth rereading. Um, but he had read the memoir and he put it on my desk and you know I read the memoir and I remember reading the back cover of the book and I'm like oh okay what this is just a sh- uh, you know this is a chef biopic but can this really be a feature length documentary I'm mm-hmm. not sure because at that point we were trying to come up with some ideas to pitch to CNN for their original docs um, program and when I met Jeremiah and I started talking to him another tall one they're another tall guy, <laughs> formidable. Yes. Um, we, you know, a sort of our initial uh, meeting was quite interesting. You know, he came in, swanned in with this amazing coat that had like this gigantic fur collar. He was quite the presence. Um, and as, a, you know, he started to talk about his life, I realized, like I just described with Mind of a Chef, that there was a story here that went beyond just what we saw on the plate and in his cookbooks. And it was a quite interesting story. It was, it was, it had a lot of depth to it, um, a lot of layers. So uh, what was it like working with Jeremiah, who's famously um, c- a control freak and prickly and, um, and charming? Yeah, all of that. And he came in with the charm, with the, the prickly, charming, and <laughs> controlling <laughs> at the top of the project. You know, he sort of gave me the photographs I was allowed to look at and the 10 people I was allowed to talk to and said, this is, you know, here, start with this. And I think pretty quickly, you know, I realized if this is going to work as a documentary film, I've got to, I've got to earn this guy's trust. Um, and, I, and I have to really just push back and push against... The, the perimeter he has set up here. And that was a, a process. <laughs> we okay. went on a nice roller coaster ride together. I think in the beginning it was, um, he's someone who's just, he's used to controlling his image and he was certainly uh, doing that. 
I think not, not in any conscious way. It's just what he did. Um, and I think it was a bit of a process, to, you know, like you do with any documentary film that's predicated on a single subject. You have to push and push and push and push. And, you know, I'm my last name in Italian means pliers. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I am very tenacious in that's, that way. I like that. Um, and I think we we got to know each other. And I think he started to trust me. And there were moments where we kind of danced in and out over the course of making the film. But I think ultimately we arrived at this place where he trusted me to tell a story. Um, And and how did you get through the tough parts? Because I know that, I mean, in all of the bits that I've read or heard you talk about, you know, it went in and out. It was not seamless. So how did you get through the parts when you just were banging your head against the wall going, oh, I can't, this guy's... Or I can't do what I want to do or need to do. Yeah. I just kept pushing. Yeah. I also realized, you know, Jeremiah is a, a, a triple Scorpio. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I have, a lot of, I have a lot of Scorpio folks in my life. And I realized, like, he just needs a moment to retreat and be quiet. And I will give him that. Um, he would say, F you, get out, you know, whatever, and push me away. And I'm like, okay, he needs his moment to be alone and be solitary like the opening of the film says you know i need to be away from humans because there's a there's an impulse there towards um a kind of very deep uh and i, I wouldn't call him lonely he's not a lonely person uh-huh. at all i think he's just the childhood was the childhood was absolutely but, but not I think, now yeah. i think he there's a um at this point in his life i think there is a, a kind of re re re-energizing that takes place in that sort of solitary hmm. state. And he did that. He exiled his way, you know, into to Mexico after all those years working a very, very busy scene, being the center of the spotlight. And, you know, you have that much sort of uh, public responsibility. The antidote to that is full retreat. And that's what he did. He went into his own self-imposed, I'm leaving, and I just need to, you know, re-energize. And he did do that. And I think when he was ready to re-emerge, and he did re-emerge for the film, um, it's because he had sort of found a different mm-hmm. center. And has he stayed re-emerged? Yeah. Well, after the film came out, and it, it made a you know, nice splash at Tribeca, and then it had a theatrical release, and um, it's about to release again on CNN. Oh, exciting. Great in November, know. November 12th, it'll be on CNN. Um, we went on a tour together, and then he retreated back to Mexico, and he wrote me one email, and he said, I'm back in Mexico. I'm pulling up the drawbridge. <laughs> <laughs> He said, you know, I will not emerge for a while. And I said, I hope you'll crack a window for me every now and then. He said, of course, window will always be open for you. And he's now, I see, kind of like dancing in and out of the public. And then he goes back to Mexico. He loves to scuba dive. He finds his center. And then he comes back out again. So, you know, he's just a wonderfully interesting, intelligent, charismatic, ornery, prickly charming person like he's just got layers and layers of of you know um energies different energies 
with that, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back for the rest of Speaking Broadly and hearing more from Lydia Tenalia about her incredible career and how you can have that, too. Stay with us. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. Welcome back to Speaking Broadly. This is your host, Dana Cowan, with my guest today, Lydia Tenalia. It's us again. It is. I can see all the people eating food out there. What a fantastic location for a radio. It's great to be at Roberta's because we have a window in here. So I don't know. The people next to us have empty plates. But soon soon it'll be pizza and you'll be very hungry. (laughs) Uh, So we were talking before the break about how Everybody has these memories that drive them forward and often shape their lives, their, their childhoods, you know, how those memories. And I'm wondering about you. So have you always wanted to be a filmmaker, documentarian? What was in your childhood that ha- was that aha moment or not? Uh, you know, I, I'm first generation Italian. My parents are from Italy. So What part? From Abruzzo. Okay. Um, both of them, same small town oh. called Orsonia. It's like very close to Pescara on the Adriatic side of Italy. Beautiful. So I grew up very ensconced, you know, by a very large extended Italian family, and very good food, um, very connected to my relatives. Uh, food was very central to our upbringing and our uh, kind of gatherings. There's a pig on the on the wall here. <laughs> the head of a pig. And it's feeling very familiar like, to you. I've, I've seen <laughs> I've seen that pig more than once at a porchetta roast in the you know, but um, you know I I think uh, very early on I I was saying about Jeremiah how he liked to be alone. There was this um, I f- I found joy in like um, kind of small alone creative pursuits. Like what? Like. My parents, for one of my birthdays, gave me a camera, and I would just kind of go out in the woods by myself and photograph things. Sometimes I would kind of set up these scenarios. Oh, I love that. In the woods, I'd, like, get costumes and sort of weird dresses. It was all black and white. 
and I would just, um, you know, play with like um, superimposition and, um, you know, uh, uh, j just I would set up like little worlds. Um, and after I got the camera, I got a dark room. I set up a dark room in the basement of our home in a spare bathroom in the basement. And so I would be in there for hours by myself, you know, developing photographs. And it was like, it gave me tremendous joy to just kind of create these little scenarios, to be able to photograph them and then develop them. And I could spend hours in there by myself. And I think, I, did, I didn't really know it at the time, but I was trying to find expression like through a visual medium. And I didn't really connect that to like producing. I was too young. I was like at that time, 11, 12, uh -huh. 13. When I got to college. Um, so you, you went to Smith. I went to Smith, yeah. Which my mother and grandmother both went to Smith. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. My sister went there, too. Also? Yeah, wow. she was a year ahead of me. So I, I followed her as I did in many, many things. Um, and at Smith, a, a roommate of mine was doing... Um, uh, a thesis, you know, in our, our, our kind of latter years at Smith on um, something to do with education, and she wanted somebody to film um, a scenario of children in a classroom with computers and how children interact with computers. And those are the early days of computers. Wow. And so I volunteered to do this with her and, um, you know, shot the whole thing and, and then kind of in a very rudimentary style edited it together. And I then something like really clicked. <laughs> I'm like, it was like a visual, the visual medium, d taking all the pieces of that, trying to figure out how to make a story out of it. Mm -hmm. And it was really my senior year at Smith, and I'm like, hey, maybe this is my career path. I was an English major with like a, a film history religion minor. <laughs> <laughs> like, what am I going to do with yeah, this? Right. The That's existential crisis, yeah. you know. <laughs> but I, I did. Um, I did, uh, something was clicking there, that maybe there's something in this field, this industry, what is it? I don't know. I don't even know what you do in this industry. What are the jobs? And so I, I kind of pushed forward very blindly, um, and I got a job at uh, Maisel's Films. Oh, my goodness. Yes. I didn't know that. Yes. Back, you know, way back in the day wow. um, when, you know, Albert was still very much alive and thriving there. Um, and... I was just a kind of, you know, coordinator receptionist, but I was but like, exposed. I was to exposed, and I think that incredible work, exactly. And I think that was that was extremely fortuitous because I think I, I what were they working on at the time? If you recall, they were working on Christo films. I okay. don't know if you know yes. they had a whole Absolutely. series of Christo films that they were doing. Um, they had a whole kind of. Um, it's kind of another division that was working on different commercials, and for the t at the time they were sort of known for these kind of real people mm -hmm. type of commercials, which were quite different at the time. So, right. sort of employing their verite style of, of of documentary making onto a commercial, huh. you know, endeavor. And so I was just exposed to a lot, you know, editors, and I became friends with the guy who ran the um, camera department there, and he taught me all sorts of things of, you know, film loading and focus pulling and, you know, kind of sharpened my AC skills. And two guys who were at Maisel's at the time, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky, I don't know if you know who they are, but they became a very well-known uh, documentary filmmaking team 
Uh, they did Brothers Keeper. Oh, wow. The Robin Hill, oh Robin Hood's okay. Murders, uh, huh. Metallica, Some Kind of Monster. They went on to have a very storied documentary career. Um, they were at the sort of nascent uh, stages of Brothers Keeper. They had read about the story. They took a drive up there. They started filming. They realized there's something here. And so kind of on the sly, because we were all employed by Maisel's at the time, working our respective jobs on the sly every weekend oh my for 10 months wow. to a year, we would take the five-and-a-half-hour drive up to Munsville, New York, me, Joe, Bruce, and Doug, the cinematographer, <laughs> just the four of us, in a car, and we would shoot all weekend, and then we'd drive back early Monday, and then we'd go to work. And that was, again, just sort of my first exposure to documentary filmmaking and, you know, you know, how do you connect with a subject, capture the true emotion of a subject? I mean, you know, I think Bruce and Joe, too, were sort of at the early stages of their directorial life. And so they were figuring it out, too. Bruce was um, an, a film editor, so he had that experience. Joe was really working in sales and marketing at Maisel. So oh, my goodness. He didn't have any, any wow. you know, but they found it, and they clicked, and they had a rhythm, and they, they, they happened upon an incredibly powerful story. And that was sort of my education in the field. Because right. <laughs> then you also went to film school, right? Yeah, but yeah. I took a, you know, I took a two-year gap between right. uh, Smith and then New York, New York University, you know, Tisch, grad. I went to grad school. Um, but that was my interim there, where I was really kind of learning, you know, in the field, uh, in the moment. So for someone who wants to grow up and be you, because who wouldn't, uh, <laughs> is the hands-on experience you had, is that the most valuable thing? Would you go back and do, if you were to do it today, would you do graduate school or not do graduate school? It's a, it's a great question. I keep asking myself, too. There was tremendous validity in, in um, you know, things that I learned at grad school. Um, I, I mean, if I look back, I could honestly say after a year of it, mm -hmm. <laughs> it was probably... You'd gotten the most out of it. I, I'd got, gotten the most out of it, honestly. I mean, it was good to work on a thesis film, and that was very important. But honestly, it's an apprenticeship field. It's really about getting yourself, inserting yourself. That's how you move from point A to point B. It's like, I want to learn what it's like to make a documentary. You know mm -hmm. what? I'm going to volunteer. I didn't get paid for Brothers Keeper. Right. I think I ultimately they gave me, you know, $1,000 for almost a year's worth of work. It was... Priceless. Priceless. Right. But I did anything I had to do. I got up at the crack of dawn. I went to, you know... I got them their coffee. I did whatever. And then when the film moved into post, I followed the trail. I'm like, Bruce, just let me <laughs> just let me sit in a couple times and let me just see what you're doing. And I did that. So, you know, frankly, I think that is truly the best education. Like, just be willing to show up, attend, be present, and be invaluable yeah. to the team by doing whatever it takes, whatever they need. So now today, everyone has a camera, which means that everybody, I mean, everybody has a phone, which means everybody has a camera, which every, means that everybody has video capabilities. There's, you can learn to edit on your phone. How has that changed uh, 
if it has at all, the work that you do or the future for those who are shooting video for fun? I mean, I think in terms of the work we do, um, you know, I think we're being very creative as a, a company to diversify what and how we create content and the platforms that we're looking on to do that. Um, so very cognizant of the shifting landscape of the media industry, how media, how, you know, content is generated, how, how quickly it can be generated. The Are you formats- taking advantage of any of that in a um, yeah. way that you'd want to share? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we... we um, we definitely are, you know, moving forward in in what we call many different columns and platforms. So we definitely have our commission shows that we pitch to networks. Um, we have shows that we've created ourselves and we've put our own financing into because we just feel like they're incredibly important stories. Case in point, um, a project that we developed with this writer, um, Stephen Ranella. Oh yeah, who's an incredible author, journalist, has written several books about the subject of hunting. Right. You know, when we first met him, walked through the door and I was like, I don't get this world. Why are we entertaining this? And then you talk to him. And it's like this the light bulb that went on with Tony. Oh my gosh, here's somebody, okay, this is the entry point. Hunting, substance hunting is the entry point, but you're really bringing us into a world that is so much bigger and wider and connected than I had ever imagined. So I'm not, I'm not answering your question explicitly, but I think from that project, we were really able to create a, a business from the Mediator Project. We created the content ourselves. We made, as a company, the deals to sell that content and put it on different platforms. We saw that there was a big audience there, so we started to own the audience. And then... We were able to translate that into a business where we were doing. We did books with Stephen. We have an incredibly successful podcast with him. We have developed merchandise together that is part of his world. So we created a business, I think. And so we're trying to think creatively how we take what we do as storytellers, and um, you know, um, c- kind of create a our own world our own universe out of it our own brand out of it and i and i use brand brand creation in in the most positive way because here's somebody who and i can say with tremendous confidence because we actually did pitch and sell mm-hmm. a one-hour pilot with steven on a traditional broadcast network uh-huh. and they didn't get it or they wanted to turn him into something else mm. like food network with tony sure they wanted him to be something else it's a box, and it's a box. Here's our box. Can right. we fit in our box? And you're like, nah, actually. And, and again, I'm not being dismissive because those boxes are successful for those respective networks. But but that's not the box that Stephen Ranella fit in. So right. we pushed forward in our own way and said, well, who is this guy? What's intrinsic to his world? How do we bring out his true voice? You know, as as a as a writer, as 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 a, a philosopher, as as somebody you know who has something very important to say and share. And I think we did that in a very, very creative way. I think what I take away from what you're saying, and it's just to connect it to the larger universe, is that uh, when you began, you made TV, and then you made docs. Then you bought some products, and I mean, you bought um, Food Republic, and you've you've grown, and now it's it's a really robust company. But you're 
full service around the notion of the character and the storytelling, but that doesn't mean that somebody else has to build out the other parts of the brand. So you own the um, the building of the whole brand, correct? Not just the shooting of the film. And, that's right. And that's what. I don't want to say it future-proofs you, but that's what has become the most interesting way to build someone's world. Yes. That it's, it's, you don't today want to just make something, put it out there and say, that was good. Right. And so having, though you are a producer, what you're really, you're an entrepreneur making um, full lifestyles around individuals. Yes. That everybody wants to connect to in many different points. Yes, I, could, I would argue that we did the same thing with Anthony Bourdain 17 mm-hmm. years ago. Yeah. I, he was somebody who was like, he was working in the kitchen, he was a good writer, I went in, I was like, this guy has like a voice, he has something to say, and we were, you know, 17 year journey later, you can see Bourdain has grown into a universe. Um, and so it's, it's extraordinary, it, it emanated really from that incredible content that we made together that that gen- that it really was anchored on the person the character what do they have to say how do we say it in the most creative way you know don't put it inside the box if it doesn't belong in the box let let break the box go outside the box let this person be the character that they truly are and and we did that with Tony we d- we've done that with Steven Ranella we're we're continuing to do that with other types of content um, because it just it emanates from like a deep desire as storytellers to tell the true story and to, to tell it in a way that is the most creative. And when you do that, it actually has incredible, you know, um, ripple effect. Ripple effect. Yeah, it really does. Like people are engaged in a long term way. You know, you you look at all these formats today, which are very quick and they're very dispensable and they're very, you know, easily throw away. People call it snackable content. We're all, you know, we're all, we're all snackers. We're all snackers. We like the snackable content, but I think what sustains an audience longer. And again, Tony, 17 years later, I think what, what sustains an audience in the long term is this sort of deeper dive into an authentic character and the universe that surrounds them. So very compelling. I w- want to be sure to bring up Wasted before our time is up together. One of the most recent projects that you've worked on is Wasted, produced, and it's a documentary about <laughs> waste, food waste. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Because I think you had a Tribeca debut, but you're about to have um, a full rollout. Yeah. Yeah, that was... a. F- um That was a project that evolved out of a relationship with the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, We had, obviously, we do a lot in the world of food and with chefs. And we had, even when, if you you brought up the Gabrielle Hamilton episode of Mind of a Chef, there's an entire episode called Garbage. And she talks about growing up and not having or, you know, really kind of struggling to even feed herself and so the idea of waste is so abhorrent to her that she figures out every way to utilize this one thing. It's a really incredible episode. And so we have that material, and of course, working with other chefs, you see they really are at the forefront you know, of the kind of food waste um, you know, 
Raising awareness. R- raising awareness. Because they've been doing it for a long time, one way or another. But yeah. The way that, I mean, you have Massimo Batura um, in the film, and of course, Refettorio is such a beautiful expression of taking food that would have otherwise gone to waste, serving it in a temple. I mean, that is yeah. the most magnificent dining room for those who cannot afford a meal. Yeah. I mean, it's... And he's opening up refectorios all over the world. It's beautiful. But, the, you know, we, we realized the Rockefeller Foundation had this uh, initiative. It was called um, YieldWise, where they were really going to focus on the, the idea of food waste, mitigating food waste, trying to have it by, you know, a certain uh, year. And we put together a pitch and we pitched them the idea of doing a film, you know, kudos to Rockefeller for being so creative and innovative and saying, yeah, let's go forward and do a, a doc feature. I think that wasn't necessarily, you know, in their immediate wheelhouse, but we went for it. And, and you know, the two directors of the film, uh, Anna Chai and Nari Kai, you know, we, we really talked about the idea of how do you take this very challenging subject <laughs> and these kind of advocacy cause-driven films tend to sometimes you know turn an audience off because everyone just wants to be entertained and make it entertaining and we said let's do it from the point of view of the chefs because everyone loves food everyone likes being watch food being made and so chefs anchor that film and then you know dotted throughout we're visiting different uh very innovative uh companies industries um ideas concepts you know, to help mitigate this problem. It's it's a fantastic film. It's about to be theatrically released. Uh, this company called Neon is distributing it. It's going to be at the Alamo Draft House oh. on October thirteenth. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm I'm very excited about it because, as many of you listeners know, there's forty percent of the food in America and actually Europe um, as well goes to waste, and it's wasted in many different ways. Some of it is within our very own control and I think something that's so great about a film like this is it makes you realize what is in your control and how you can change your everyday behavior to help that little bit you know you not said so I end each show asking my guest to nominate a woman in the food or um, beverage industry for the Speaking Broadly Hall of Dames so someone who you admire, someone, it doesn't have to be a chef, it could be a filmmaker or anything, it could be a knife maker, uh, just to nominate and why you think that they deserve to be in the Hall of Dames. Uh, uh, there's only one person I can name. You can, you, you can go up to three. <laughs> up to three. Um, I've always been, I mean, just as a company, 0.0, because we've shot with her, and I just think as a, as a person, as a um, April Bloomfield, is just the most wonderful, talented um, collaborator that we've worked with for a long time. I think just her work ethos, how she populates her kitchen, the food that she's making, the way she treats people is extraordinary. And so I would definitely nominate her. Um, Erin McKenna, I don't know if you know oh, yeah. her, from Baby Cakes. Yes. Um, here's someone who sort of turned a particular personal ailment as, you know, a gluten allergy into an incredible business. So she's an amazing entrepreneur. Um, Baby Cakes is all kind of gluten-free. It's in, in, And I think she just did an, another book. Yes. Yeah, so I, 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 I know how hard it is to start your own business. Mm-hmm. Um 
I know all the challenges, the pitfalls, the emotional roller coaster, the <laughs> the highs and the lows of that. So I'm always just really impressed by like any woman in particular who's able to kind of push forward and kind of start her own endeavor. So I would definitely nominate her. And um, the third person would be because I just love her dearly and I think she's so very talented, you know, Ruth Rachel, who's, um, you know, despite the gourmet years behind her, has continued to kind of push forward in interesting and poetic and wonderful ways. And I always like reading her books and, and I love her beautiful poetry and her in her Twitter, so. She really is a poet. Yeah. At the end of the day. Like, she's a, such a communicator and so in love with life, even when it's hard. Yeah. It's quite inspiring. And yeah. you have been very inspiring today. So, Lydia, thank you so much for joining me on Speaking Broadly. I want to thank David Tadashore, my engineer. Woohoo! And Carlin, who is our special guest. So we'll be back next week. It, let me know what you think of the show. You can find me at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. And where can people find you, Lydia? You're not um, much of a social media person. No, I personally am not. You're not. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, you know, I like to hide under a rock. Apparently, so. <laughs> you and Jeremiah are off like in the Mexican coast no, you know, somewhere. It's funny because I stalk on our um, company uh, social media handles. So it's, you know, all of the 0.0 CPZ production. Right. Okay. Just, so yeah. if you want to see all the amazing things that 0.0 uh, is up to, you can find them at, is it at Z- ZPZ Productions? Productions. Yeah. Uh, that's the show we're looking forward to seeing you again next week thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.